Hi, James Rudd here with the Heart Podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Eric Topol, who is a world-renowned cardiologist, executive vice president of Scripps Research, founder of a new medical school and one of the top 10 most cited medical researchers in the world. He's previously written books called The Patient Will See You Now and The Creative Destruction of Medicine. And his latest book is called Deep Medicine. And it's all about the AI revolution in healthcare. And Eric and I have a fantastic discussion, very wide ranging, all about how AI will impact both patients, doctors and healthcare providers of all flavors across all specialties over the next few years. Some of the things we need to be aware of in terms of pitfalls, uh, who's going to pay for this, how training may change, and also his own personal journey uh, as a cardiologist into the world of AI. I really hope you enjoy the podcast. Please feel free to share and to subscribe to the Heart Podcast on iTunes or elsewhere. And I will put links to Professor Topol's books in the show notes so you can go and check them out and buy them. He's also a fantastic follower on Twitter, and I'll put his Twitter handle also in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Perhaps I can ask you to start off by telling us a little bit about your background, uh, Professor Topol. How did you get into the the uh, the field of cardiology in the first place, and more recently, AI in medicine? Well, James, it really uh, was not my plan. I um, had gone out to University of California, San Francisco, for my training, residency training after med school actually to become an endocrinologist because um, my father had suffered um, juvenile diabetes and had every complication imaginable. Um, But when I got there uh, to San Francisco, uh, Kano Chatterjee, who was my hero mentor, he uh, convinced me that cardiology was the field to go in. And it was a very exciting time uh, from 1980, uh, thereabouts, uh, where the first angioplasty was being done for the coronary disease and first thrombolysis for heart attack and so many things that were captivating. So that's when I made the decision to pursue cardiology. And then you were the, you were the chief of cardiology and medicine at the Cleveland Clinic for many years. And now you head up the Scripps Translational Research Institute. Yeah, I've been here for almost 13 years now at Scripps Research. And, uh, it's been the most exciting time of all because we really have the chance to be innovative and free thinking and try to do things that hopefully will be uh, transformative in the future uh, of medicine, you know, not just uh, cardiovascular, but even beyond that. And I, I would classify you as one of those kind of rock star uh, cardiologists or physicians that you talk about in your most recent book, Deep Medicine. You have some rock stars of AI, but perhaps we can start with the, the first two books that you wrote in a couple of sentences, because uh, they all lead up to, I think, to this this most recent publication, Deep Medicine. Can you describe the first couple of, of, of books that you've authored? Sure, James, thanks. Well, first, uh, Creative Destruction of Medicine was really about how uh, we are still stuck in the analog era and we need to go digital. And with that, uh, it was about sensors and telemedicine you know, all things that are digital beyond the electronic record, which has been such an abject failure. Uh, the second book, uh, The Patient Will See You Now, was about democratization. And that is once data became eminently transferable, 
uh, and uh, portable that we should be able to have a level playing field and get patients much more ch uh, charged and empowered. So those were the two books that led up to the, the one, uh, Deep Medicine on AI. And what got you into writing this book, Eric? You, you say in the introduction and the first few chapters that you're, you're definitely not a computer scientist by training, uh, but you saw the potential for this, I guess, some years prior, given the, the trajectory of your other two books. Right. Well, the problem has been uh, that we're generating so much data. Uh, we're well beyond zettabytes or we're heading to hell of a bytes. And, you know, we don't know <laughs> all this data, right? So um, AI is just now coming on board in medicine and it is our best shot to exploit the ability for machines to uh, decompress the work of doctors and make things more accurate and efficient. Uh, we obviously have a, a terrible time with efficiency and accuracy, so why not uh, see if machines can help us? So that's really what led me into the uh, idea that I should spend a few years and, and learn this field and try to um, crystallize what we could get out of it if we really do it right. And your book is called Deep Medicine. Can you talk a little bit about the, should we say, the current paradigm or shallow medicine as you describe it? You touched on electronic healthcare records and time constraints. Can you elaborate a little bit on the situation we find ourselves in today as practicing cardiologists? Sure. sure. I, I think shallow is actually a really good categorization. Um, there's a chapter dedicated to that. But essentially what shallow means, of course, that we have very little time with patients. So we have ver a very minimal uh, idea of what's going on. You don't even let them talk. You know, patients get interrupted quickly. There's a single-digit number of minutes that we're with them. We don't have the context. Uh, going through all their records takes time, and we frequently don't have the chance to do that. And the notes are often uh, cut and pasted and have errors that are propagated from one to the next. Um, and so this, this relationship has suffered uh, a steady erosion, and it's much more shallow than it used to be, uh, you know, 40 years ago, when I uh, finished medical school, we actually had a, what I would consider um, a very uh, strong and, and deep relationship with patients. So this is, I think, uh, something that is not necessarily irreversible, but it's, it's a serious um, hit to the way that medicines practice. And it's the human factor, the essence of medicine that's been compromised. And you talk a, quite a lot about electronic healthcare records and how doctors are sitting there pecking away at the Epic or Cerno, whichever flavor of EHR we have. And that really, um, the patients spend a lot of time staring at the back of your head, right? When you're supposedly uh, dealing with them face to face. Yeah, that's right. Uh, exactly, James. The shallow part is, extends to even eye to eye contact, but it's also the burnout too, because, because uh, clinicians, doctors feel that they can't execute their charge while they went into medicine in the first place. There are record levels of burnout and depression uh, and even suicide. So this uh, burnout is associated with a doubling of medical errors and that sets up a vicious cycle because when there's an error, there's much more likelihood of then being burnout. So we have um, a really uh, serious uh, state it, you know, really, it should not be considered sustainable, and we really need a solution to turn this around. 
and several of the chapters of your excellent book, you talk about the various solutions and how AI can help us improve our diagnostic skills, uh, improve the type of research that we do, uh, maybe even translate into a full, fully-fledged virtual assistant, giving you kind of hour-by-hour advice about how to live longer and improve your health. But maybe we can talk about the, the paradox, which I found at the heart of the book, where you say that AI is hopefully going to really improve things for uh, particularly the patient-doctor relationship. So technology, even though EHRs are here to stay for sure, uh, you think that AI can help us to spend more time with patients. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, Eric? Sure. Well, I think the essence, uh, the far-reaching objective, in my view, would be this uh, gift of time. That is, there's so many things that machines can do uh, on the doctor-clinician side, they can clearly uh, ingest the data and help uh, get that teed up uh, so that it's uh, done more quickly and efficiently. But also, of course, whether it's reading a scan or a uh, slide or any pattern, uh, skin lesion, you name it, it's going to be at least initially assessed through an algorithm uh, deep learning algorithm. So th the elimination of keyboards, it would be yet another dimension through natural language processing, a subtype of AI, just like deep learning. All these things on the doctor side outsource things to machines. Not completely, of course, there's got to be, in my view, uh, the oversight, but at least the beginning of, of uh, this decompression, uh, outsourcing can be Shifted, And then on the, on the patient side, similarly, by giving many routine diagnostics to AI tools, patients can be diagnosed many non-serious things, routine things, things like a urinary tract infection, ear infection, a skin rash, by themselves with an algorithm that's validated. And also, as you already mentioned, James, this virtual health coach that would be uh, seamlessly, continuously uh, uh, assimilating data and algorithmically interpreting that for the person. So there's many different ways that this gift of time could be uh, harnessed. And that, I think, is the first step. Once we have time uh, with patients, uh, then I think that's the beginning of getting us back to the, uh, the humane, uh, the, uh, the essence of what we really are all about, which is providing care and this whole term healthcare, uh, the care part has been lost. Yeah. And I guess the, the other thing that, that strikes me is that if AI does make us more efficient, say a radiologist can read more chest x-rays with the help of an AI assistant, won't the administrators just say, well, that's fantastic, James. Now you have to read, you know, three times or four times as many. How are we going to fight against this uh, increased efficiency just being taken up with uh, with more work. Yeah, that's my biggest concern. You know, while many argue, as I do in the book, that there's critical issues like privacy and security and the ethics and the bias and black box and, you know, so many issues. But uh, the biggest one to me is whether we're going to have administrators and managers who are going to see the light and see how we can turn inward and to give this efficiency back to the patient-doctor relationship. And so this is, of course, the counterintuitive side 
uh, of using technology to enhance humanity, but it's attainable. Uh, you know, I'm really quite certain of that, but I'm equally as worried that we will not take that initiative because it's going to take a lot of activism and effort. It's not going to happen by accident. The default mode will make things even worse right. if, it, if that's even conceivable. Right. Well, I, I mean, I certainly hope that that doesn't happen, but there is a, let's just get all the scary stuff out of the way first. There is a section and a quote from Jeffrey Hinton, one of the fathers, I guess, of artificial intelligence, where he talks about too many radiologists being trained. We shouldn't even need to train a single radiologist again in the future. Everything's going to be replaced by AI. I mean, I take it that you you, you don't agree with that. And I think you've pushed back uh, with him in person about that kind of view, saying that actually AI is going to help take away some of the drudge work of being a radiologist and allow you to concentrate your efforts on the, the truly abnormal uh, images that need uh, need more input. Exactly, James. And the other thing about that is uh, many people think that radiologists love to live in the dark basement. But <laughs> in fact, no, it's not really true. A very large proportion would love to have more role in actual seeing patients and interaction. And their expertise is being missed because we hardly ever have those conversations. And they really are the independent reviewers of a patient's data of their scan. So that is very different than when you talk to a surgeon, do you need this operation uh, versus talking to radiologists of what they found. So that assessment as a, also as a gatekeeper as to reducing the need for uh, these unnecessary scans, a lot of radiation, ionizing radiation that's being used unnecessarily. So lots of things that radiologists can do if they're made to be more efficient uh, and I think that would be a welcome step for that discipline. Certainly the radiologists that I deal with uh, here in Cambridge, they, they seem to really enjoy coming to multidisciplinary team meetings with other clinicians and uh, and patients, and, and their input is, is hugely important. As you say, you get a lot more, I think, from discussing the scan result with the radiologist who reported it than simply reading the dry text on the page. So I definitely would agree. Yeah, no, I think that also that kind of reconfiguration, the liberation of each of these specialties, pathology, uh, ophthalmology, dermatology, there's so many things that are happening right now to show that it's it could be one of the most exciting times going forward because a lot of uh, these disciplines will be able to do things that they hadn't done previously. Can you give us a, a few examples of where you think AI will directly impact uh, cardiology. You mentioned lots of other specialties in the book like mental health, which is uh, certainly a fascinating chapter. But for the cardiologists listening, we all know about the rather useless uh, EKG uh, <laughs> heuristic kind of, I guess it's not even AI really, but um, where's it actually going to make a, a positive impact on, on doctors and, and patients' lives in cardiology? Right. Well, as you've seen, um, it, it, it isn't necessarily uh, um, positive, uh, but for example, the deep learning algorithm of the smartwatch, uh, first introduced by AliveCore, then Apple, to diagnose atrial fibrillation in people by learning that person's resting heart rate and then their uh, activity, physical activity heart rate, that is an example of a, the first uh, consumer approved um, uh, deep learning AI, and there'll be many more. So that is good and bad. One is for people at high risk with symptoms, that would be nice to be able to diagnose 
and get the cardiogram through the watch to ice it to make the diagnosis. Uh, and that would have would replace things like a halter monitor and all sorts of other uh, workup that we do. So that's on the on the patient side, and there will be many more of these, whether it's for blood pressure, uh, obviously many deep learning algorithms can be to benefit on the patient side. But on the, on the cardiologist side, I think it's just dealing with the, the multitude of data uh, that we, you know, for example, a patient we see now, we'd like to have all of their levels of data uh, incorporated as we see them. So everything in their past history from all source, but also, you know, the, their genome, their microbiome, their sensor data. Um, and so that's the sort of thing that humans are not very good at. And we can train deep learning algorithms to do that well. Do you think there's any danger in the, I don't really buy into this, but a lot of people talk about the, the black box element, particularly with the deep learning algorithms. And some of this is now being exposed with, with uh, things like explainable AI. But can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, in your book, you mentioned the the brilliant Pierce Keen example of the retinal images. Uh, the computer can tell you whether it's a male or a female subject, but the eye expert is a 50-50 tossing a coin shot. Do you have any anything to say about this black box? Should we be scared of the, the algorithms that are uh, potentially coming into healthcare soon? Well, it's really interesting, James. It's controversial because we have so much black box of what we do in medicine today. And the question is, are we going to hold algorithms when they're fully validated clinically? Are we going to hold them to a much higher standard? So while that is unsettled, uh, at the same time, you touched on the fact that now AI is being used to deconstruct these uh, black box issues, these features, to basically go backwards and find out uh, what are the features that, for example, the one you gave with the retina, why can a machine be trained with 97 plus percent accuracy to know whether it's a, a male or female retinal picture, whereas humans can't see that, even experts. So more and more, we're, we're seeing this um, explainability, uh, which I think over time, the black box will be less of an issue, but we also have had so few real clinical validations, whether it's through my study. So, you know, we're kind of right in between this where um, not enough prospective, really important validation studies have been done. And at the same time, uh, we're, we're getting uh, hopefully over the black box issue, which ideally we'd like to explain every algorithm. But as you say, we, I mean, how does a general anesthetic work? I mean, you know, I don't think anybody really knows now. So, and we're quite comfortable having them ourselves and giving them to <laughs> patients, right? So exactly and there's so many things like that we just take for granted we we think we we know how these things work and oftentimes we have no clue and do you you mentioned a little bit there about clinical trials of algorithms i know there are some other uh, other folks that think that we should hold algorithms to the same level that we do a new medical uh, a new drug that we give or a medical device do you do you believe in that uh, you know phase 1 to phase 4 clinical trials for ai I think that's really the right model. Um, there's a few uh, points about that. Firstly, that these algorithms are so powerful that um, instead of a mistake that a doctor may make with a single patient, this could be at scale and hurt if it's if it's had malware or if there's a glitch or there's some issue about the patients that were uh, tested versus the ones that now are being applied are so different. 
So we really have to have these under surveillance um, so that phase four issue uh, post uh, rigorous clinical environment validation is especially important. The other thing that's really interesting, uh, James, is that when these algorithms go through regulatory approval, they get today, they get frozen, they get locked. And that's a big issue because, you know, when the, the beauty about these is that they're autodidactic and you just want to keep that power of just getting better and better. Um, you, you hate to freeze that. So we haven't yet gotten a uh, path towards exploiting this great power which is a two-edged sword, of course, because it, it has tremendous upside and then there's a downside that I already touched on. And uh, just wrapping up a couple more questions, how are we going to make sure that, that all groups in society benefit from the, the AI in medicine revolution? Yeah, I think that's really uh, vital that we don't worsen inequities. Uh, they're already a, such a big problem, especially here in the U.S., because of our not providing health care for all citizens. Hmm. And, you know, I think there is evidence already, like, for example, the smartphone ultrasound and echocardiograms that are being done in Africa. Hmm. Uh, there are so many ways that we can use algorithms and digital medicine to make inequities less, or as I learned through the UK experience, you call them inequalities, right. which is probably a better term. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we can do this, but it takes, again, uh, you know, that aggressive action. These are relatively cheap things. These are software and cheap chips, uh, hardware. So a lot of these things could be given uh, or used in, in, in the hinterland. So we have to really make an effort to try to reduce uh, the inequalities with this uh, technology that's got so much promise. And what are you most optimistic about? Eric, in, in the future, let's say in, in five or 10 years time, how do you see the, the, the clinic visit on that sort of time scale? Well, you know, I really do think we'll see if we do this right, uh, expansion of the time, uh, at least a doubling or tripling of the time uh, together and rebuilding this patient doctor relationship. So that incorporates uh, the presence. So, you know, you're really being listened to. And uh, we have to acknowledge that there is no such thing as a, a digital uh, story, life story of a person that's always going to be only only obtained through you know, careful listening. The trust could get reestablished and the, the uh, whole idea of this uh, care, uh, empathy, compassion, that we could get back to that deep state, which is really exciting. So. That's what I think we need to aspire to. And there's already evidence, James, that I just learned about where in Geisinger, they started our new program even without AI, where patients and doctors had to spend at least 40 minutes together or they weren't allowed to leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> and it's striking is that wow. they actually, both parties loved it. The doctors loved it. The patients loved it. And that just shows you if we start having that sort of thing happening, that could be the the path that we need to get on because that's that would that would probably be the ultimate cure for burnout uh, if you could actually feel like you're caring for patients again and obviously patients uh, love it so that was a uh, I only found about that recently and uh, that got me very excited and just to finish I must say you're an excellent follow on on Twitter and you seem to be I don't know how you ever find 
the time to do anything else apart from uh, read and highlight uh, amazing papers on Twitter. I mean, how much time and how do you curate all that medical literature so that you can uh, recall what you need? Well, you're very kind. I do enjoy Twitter. I probably put too much time into it, but it's just because I read a lot and I figure, well, if I read it and I find it interesting, why don't I quickly share it? So it doesn't take much time. The reading, of course, takes the time, but I do that anyway. I spend at least a couple hours a day, sometimes more, reading papers. I'm lucky because I get, as an editor, uh, I get uh, a lot of the journals even early so I can gear up. Uh, and, you know, I do do all those tweets that are coming directly from me. I don't have any help. People think I have this army of right. of uh, staff. No, no, it's just me. But I do enjoy it. And uh, I also learn a lot from Twitter. And I encourage uh, all our colleagues to get on it if they're not already, because if we all shared, we'd all get smarter faster. Right. Uh, I'm, yeah, I've, I've done pretty well here in Cambridge in the UK, but there's still some holdouts that I think would be fantastic on Twitter. But uh, we'll get there eventually. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Dr. Topol. That's a fascinating discussion, and I'll put links to your to your book, uh, which is called Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again, in the links to the, uh, to the podcast. And uh, Eric, I'll also send you a link so you can perhaps publicize it on Twitter. Oh, I'd be happy to, and I really appreciate the, the chance. The conversation was uh, really fun, and thanks so much, James.